turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 8. I bet none of y'all were expecting all creatures of our God and King tonight. So tonight, um, we bring to a conclusion uh, kind of a a sermon series, a three-part series that has extended our community group, um, our summer community group topic and kind of those that little camp of ideas, uh, looking at things that contribute to our discontentment, uh, not in a, like God only wants you to be happy all the time kind of way, but uh, He wants us to live full lives. There's an an abundance that He has in mind uh, across the board uh, in our relationship with Him, in our relationship with one another, um, in our church life, in our home, home life, in uh, how we relate to career and work and money and possessions and uh, God's plan for your life and where he has you. And um, sure, he wants there to be happiness. Yeah, but it's, it's not a guarantee, of course. He tells us himself, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Uh, you're going to have dark days. You're going to have difficulty. Um, he says, but take heart because I've overcome those things. And so, not in a sense of God just wanting us to be happy all the time, but when it comes to living in the fullness of what He has for us, a lot of us struggle with, with really settling in and being content in the way that He has designed those different areas of life. And so we've looked at some obstacles that maybe uh, are contributing to that. And First uh, Samuel 8 has been our text for these, all these three weeks, and it'll be so again tonight. Uh, let's, let's start at the beginning. So Samuel had been the judge uh, over Israel, uh, functioning as a uh, as a prophet and as a mouthpiece from the Lord, as far as giving leadership. So God would speak and, and lead Samuel, and Samuel would pass it on to the people, and that's how the relationship worked. Uh, so, to verse one, uh, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Uh, the name of his first firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to judge us like all the nations. Okay, so let me just stop right there. Um, The... Two weeks ago, we talked about one of the contributing factors to our discontent can be comparison. And how uh, we look at Israel, they they were looking at the way that their leadership functioned, which was God speaks to Samuel, Samuel speaks to them, God being essentially their king, right? Um, They started looking at the way other nations worked around them and started comparing themselves. And they're like, man, those guys, they have a king, and they have a king, and they have a king, and... um, how come we don't have a king? Why is why we gotta listen to this guy Samuel? He's old, and his sons are crazy. So this is not really working out very well. It's working out better for other people who have a king. Why don't we have a king? Until we have a king, we will not be legitimate. We will not be ex- everything that we need to be. Um, so that comparison to the way that uh, that the way that God was like had designed their leadership versus how in other nations really it really tripped them up, and it trips us up as well. That we sometimes get caught up in what other people have compared to us, how, what other people look like compared to us, 
um, how people are happy in different areas of life versus us, and always like we're just kind of a victim of that, and that's the way our culture works. That everything it's just in our face constantly, 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 trying to figure out where you size up among your peers and your coworkers, and you know that kind of stuff. And so, um, comparison, even even down to other people's relationship with the Lord, you know that. That you look at someone who's a driven prayer warrior, and instead of admiring that and being challenged by that and thanking God for bringing those kinds of people into our, our family here, uh, you, you, know, you start comparing yourself, and then you either feel terrible about yourself because you don't pray as much as they do, or you start to be jealous and you know, kind of envy that and you know, those kinds of things. And so it, it gets into our relationship with the Lord. It gets into our relationship with, with each other. It gets into our relationship to our you know, possessions, stuff like that. So, if you're a podcaster, go listen two weeks ago. Um, that was kind of the fir- our first stop on the journey uh, that we see them there. They're comparing themselves to other nations. And then in verse 5, uh, they say, A point for us, a king, to judge us like all the nations. From that comparison, they kind of got it in their head, this, this idea that a king is, is like the, it's the missing uh, ingredient for them. You know? This concept that if they had a, a person who I guess wore a crown and sat on like a giant golden throne type deal and had a palace or something, I don't know. Uh, but if they had a person that they could go to who would make decrees and would determine things and all that kind of stuff, that that would be better. They had this concept in their idea that, that became an idol because they exchanged it for what God uh, had for them. So God's, so God's design is this. God's design for Israel is that uh, everybody else has, has an earthly king. God says, you are my people I will be your God, you will be my people. That's the covenant arrangement. And so he says, uh, I'm going to be your king, I'm going to guide you, I'm going to uh, empower your efforts in battle, I'm going to carry out my plan for you. You are unique and different than everyone else, um, and uh, this is how it's going to work. They exchange that truth for the lie that uh, an earthly king will be better than that. So we looked at Romans one twenty four last week about idolatry, that that's what happens. There's an exchange there's a swapping out of, you, we remove what God says is true, and we put in some sort of, of lie, whether it's a, a belief about a person, a belief about uh, something we possess, some sort of idea. I mean, here in uh, Israel, it's this abstract idea of a king. You know, we can idolize things that aren't even tangible. Um, so there's that exchange, and then they begin to serve it and worship it. And that's what we have here, is they've, they've swapped out the truth of God for a lie about an earthly king, and now they are serving that idea. They are worshiping it. They are challenging Samuel, uh, saying, we want a king. We want this idol. They don't say it that way, but we know that's what's going on. So um, that's what we talked about last week. So you can go listen to that one. So comparison a lot of times leads to idolatry. And there's something interesting that happens uh, to me in this story. It's just, it's just not what I thought. So, verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. In other translations, it says that, that he saw this as evil or saw this as sin um, when they came up and said, We want a king. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, 
so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them, show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So the people, so they go from comparing themselves to other nations to forming this, this idea that they begin to uh, worship as an idol and serve and give themselves to, exchanging the truth of God for that lie. They go to Samuel, and they're, basically what they're saying is like, we don't really want God to be our king. We want a, like a human king. Will you give us an idol for us to worship and serve? That's basically what they said. And God says, okay, here, you know, give them an idol. And I think that messes with me so much because I think about, like, that playing out in normal, everyday life. Why in the world would God give them an idol? It doesn't make sense. Now hear me out, I'm not saying that God does this all the time. That this is standard, like, this is God's M.O., I'm just saying, like, in this case, and I think cases, too, in our lives sometimes, God just hands us the very thing that we have rejected him for. And I don't understand it fully. And when I read this story a couple weeks ago, I was, I was at my brother's church in Kentucky, and Jeff Eaton, their pastor, he preached from this text, and as he's preaching, I'm like, man, this has everything that we've been talking about in groups in, it, in this one place. And that's the part I kept getting hung up on. Is why in the world would God give them an idol? It doesn't make sense to me. And I've been thinking about this for weeks, about how he, he doesn't always do that, but sometimes he does. You know, I would think if, if someone had exchanged the truth about God for a lie in regard to, let's say, money, that God would withhold money from them. You know, why give them something weird to worship? If they're already headed in that direction, why confirm it? You know, if someone is, has made an idol out of this idea of, of marriage or dating or anything like that, why would you give them someone to date or someone to marry? I don't get it. If God knows that someone is going to make an idol out of their children, then why, why does that happen? If someone's going to um, do that with their career or how much, you know, how much they make and all this kind of stuff, this like weird ambition that kicks in. Why does he let people get jobs and promotions and that kind of stuff? Like why, why does he just hand us things that we can worship, especially when we're asking for it, you know? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Maybe it makes sense to you. Um, but I think that this was really helpful. Look at verse 9. This was helpful to me in understanding why maybe he would do this. He says, Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. So he's describing what it's going to be like to live under the rule of an earthly king. Uh, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. All right, so he's going to take all your sons. He's going to put them in his military, but he's going to put them in the most likely places for them to all die. Uh, Verse 12, he'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. 
So those, uh, those who are not on the front lines of war are going to be um, now put to work for the benefit of the king in the fields and making spears and chariots and those kinds of things. Um, so basically, you're going to have to go to work for him. Uh, verse 13, he'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Um, so he's going to put your daughters to work in, outside of the family business, outside of the way that God designed like their communities to work. Uh, 14, he'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. So all the work that you've put in growing your farms and growing all these kinds of things, he's just going to take the best of it for himself and his servants. 15, take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. 16, he'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. All right, uh, I, think, I think we understand what he's, the picture he's painting. Uh, he'll take a tenth of your flocks and, uh, oh yeah, and you shall be his slaves. In case that hasn't been clear to this point, you're going to be his slaves. Verse 18, here's, here's to me where it culminates. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Why would he give them an idol? Why would he hand them a king? Here's, here's the reason. To break their hearts. To destroy their ideas, their ties to this. He gives them an idol so that the idol can come up short and fail to meet their expectations. Unmet expectations are a natural part of idolatry in comparison. That's where, that's where those paths lead to. Comparison will come up short. Idolatry will come up short. And you'll find yourself very, very disappointed. And that's why he gives them a king. Because apparently, sometimes, it's the only way that we'll learn. So God is not random. God is not, he doesn't mess up. You know, he doesn't like, oh, I'm going to flip a coin on this one. No, he knows. He has a, a purpose and a plan. And apparently, as a nation, this is the only way that they were going to learn. So he gives them their idol. So that it breaks their hearts. So that they will see the reality and truth of the goodness of God. That's where it's headed. And so to think of God in that kind of way, I think is perhaps helpful. But sometimes when, when we're, we're wanting something, whether it's from comparison or, or, idol, or whatever it is, however we got there and we want something, sometimes he lets us have it. Now, let me give you an example of how this might, might play out. The last few weeks we've gone through different areas of life, you know, kind of the last few weeks and how these things apply. And I'm not going to go through a bunch. I just want to go through one to kind of, kind of show where, how this works out. So here in this story, Samuel and his sons, and, and more importantly, the system that God has set up is not meeting the expectations of the people. And so they revolt. 
So God gives them a, is going to give them a king who is going to fail to meet their expectations, and they're going to realize, like, man, we, we missed it. So in life, sometimes this, like, a very similar thing happens. And, and I'll, let me take marriage as an example. Um, you have everyone, and if, if I have performed your wedding ceremony, we've sat down before the wedding, we've talked about this, every single, every single one of you, you may not remember, but we did, um, this idea that both uh, husband and wife are bringing certain expectations into a marriage. The marriages that you grew up watching, um, like, like in the house where you were raised, uh, maybe things that you have read, maybe, um, maybe aunts and uncles or grandparents or parents or however that, that really works, maybe stuff that you've watched. Maybe uh, if you grew up watching the Cosby show, maybe that was like the number one, like this has shaped my idea of marriage, you know, kind of thing. Um, Whatever it is, you, both husband and wife, have all these ideas that have worked together to form an understanding and a set of expectations, assuming what marriage is going to be like. So as life unfolds and you, you date someone, now you've gone from this, this idea to, like, it's, it's much more, like, concrete. There's a person. And so you anticipate what it'll be like to be married to this person, and you get married and then it's no longer a concept. Now it's like it's your reality, and you're married. And uh, not all, not all the time, but more let's say greater than one time. This is, I've heard this. Uh, a couple years into marriage, and like man, this this is not what I thought it was going to be. You know, marriage has not it's not met my expectations. And you're like, okay, what's it, what does that mean? So you start talking and talking and talking, and a lot of times this this is is a this is a dramatic end of the spectrum as to what happens. Okay, but yeah, so um, you have a wife who expects certain things because she's watched certain relationships and she's read certain things and she's you know all this kind of stuff is like she's bringing these expectations in. You have a husband who is doing the same thing, and very few times do those expectations sync up perfectly all the way across the board. You know. Sometimes it, it, it does, but there are a lot of times where uh, just, it's just not, your expectations aren't being met. And it leads to like fights. That's what happens. People fight over it. Sometimes they, they fight like every single day over unmet expectations. And sometimes it's like maybe once a month. And sometimes it's like after five years of just like pent up unmet expectations, there's just this er- volcanic eruption of like whatever and stuff like that. And a lot of times it's traced back to the fact that the wife is maybe expecting the wrong things out of marriage and out of her husband. Because maybe she's, maybe, maybe here's an example, maybe the idea is like, well, I'm, I'm supposed to be his princess, you know? He's supposed to make my life a fairy tale, you know? And because she's watched the wrong examples and read the wrong books and watched the wrong movies, that's an expectation that's been come in. So maybe, there's, maybe that's the thing. And then maybe the husband is like, this is just not working for me. It's not meeting my expectations. And you start to find out why. And it's like, well, because of what he's watched, maybe on the internet, maybe in other places, maybe whatever's formed with him, he's coming in and he's like, well, I just expect certain things. Like, I mean, you know. Maybe dinner should be ready and the house should be clean and everything should always be however I want it, in the kitchen or the bedroom or whatever. You know, there's this weird set of expectations brought in. They both bring these weird expectations in and they're at conflict with each other. And then you don't know what to do. 
So you either deal with it every day and fight your way through it, kind of in circles, or sometimes you fight occasionally, and sometimes it's every five or six years it's this big thing that erupts. But the truth is, in both cases that I just described, and I'm not, believe me, that's not a blanket statement over a bunch of marriages or whatever, it's just, just examples. She's expecting things from him that marriage was never designed to provide. And he's expecting things from her that marriage was never designed to provide. So, if coming into it, both of these people have this idolatrous idea of marriage, that it's going to fulfill them and complete them and make them uh, whole, you know, or whatever, they drag that in, their spouse fails to meet their expectations, and they just get angry. So what you do in that situation is you kind of like work your way backwards and you're like, wait a second, you're expecting him to do this or you're expecting her to do this. Let's look at what the Bible says a marriage covenant is about. Let's, let's see if your expectations are misplaced or if they're accurately placed. So you go to Ephesians 5 and you look at, oh, okay, well, God made marriage to do this. It's about holiness and Sanctification, it's about a helpmate. It's about living out a parable of Christ in the church for everyone to see and for us to grow more deeply in. And If you're not meeting each other's expectations in that pursuit, then that's a healthy conversation you can have. But the Bible doesn't ever talk about princesses and fairy tales or making sure that the house is clean or any sort of weird expectations in other ways. Uh, that is different. So there are times when we're expecting something, it doesn't match up with reality, and we have to figure out what to do about it. And in every case, whether it's marriage, whether it's work, whether it's money, whether it's family, in whatever case it is, when your discontentment is, can be traced back to the fact that, man, I'm expecting something that is not being provided We have to go back to the scriptures and we have to say, am I expecting something that the Bible lays out as being a fair expectation? Or am I dragging culture and literature and all these weird ideas and that kind of stuff in? Am I imposing that on work? Am I imposing that on my possessions? Am I imposing that on my spouse? So, when we we take this idea... And God, very clearly, in the story, he's like, okay, I'll give you this idol, but here's what it's going to be like. It's going to break your heart. He tells us that in all these other areas of life. He tells us, hey, if you, if you, if you idolize these different things, they're going to break your heart. Look at verse 19. So what do the people do? You would think that after hearing that, they would be like, oh man, that sounds like a terrible life. You would think that in, in our lives, if God's like, hey, uh, you can't worship God in money. And he explains that and he, uh, he talks about like money as an entity and all this kind of stuff. And he describes that really well. He describes what a marriage should be and what it shouldn't be. And all these kind of things, he's very clear about what to expect. Like, hey, this is going to hurt you. You would think we would say, okay, well then I don't want that now. But verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said no. 
but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They, they kind of just scoffed at God. They laughed at him and said, oh, that's cute that you think it's going to be like that. We don't really care. We're going to worship this idol anyway. And that's the painful reality of idolatry and comparison and expectations and all these things we've been talking about is that a lot of times we don't care that God says, this is going to hurt you. This is painful. Maybe we're saying, I'll be okay. I'll, I'll muscle through it. Or maybe we think he's a liar. Maybe we think he's a control freak. Or maybe we think this and this and this. But a lot of times we do the same thing. We gather on Sundays, we gather in community groups, we look at the Word of God, we know, we know the things that are, that are destroying us and killing us, the things that are choking out that abundant life, and a lot of times we just reject Him. In a verse, you don't have to turn to it, but in verse 7, that's, what, that's how God describes their idolatry, as a rejection of Him. It's not just like choosing A or B, it's choosing B and rejecting A. Saying no to that. It's not like, well, I kind of prefer this. It's like, no. That's, that's how God sees it. And so I think that's the thing that we really need to deal with is the fact that uh, sometimes God is the one that doesn't meet our expectations. Sometimes He is the one that disappoints us. My example of marriage, think about the same thing happening not the same thing. Similar thing happening in our relationship with the Lord. He's made a covenant with us. He will be our people. We will, will be His God. I mean, wait. We'll be His people. He'll be our God. So we're in this relationship, and He said that He will do certain things, and we've said that we will do certain things. And sometimes, just complete honesty, He... From, from our perspective, from my perspective, he doesn't do the things that he said he was going to do. Maybe I'm the only one. Sometimes I watch the news. I'm like, how in the world is this happening? Sometimes I talk with people in the church or outside the church and different things going on. I'm just like, how? Where is he, you know? It's one thing for your spouse to not meet your expectations. You can, you can, you can work with that. You can, you can carry out biblical conflict resolution. You can, if, if your spouse is not loving you as Christ loved the church, you can bring that verse to them. You can like work it through. And there's, you can work through those things. Because they can, like if there will be times when you're, you're walking in holiness and they are not, you know. But what about when the spouse that you're upset with is Jesus, you know? He can't mess up. He can't correct something, you know? He can't come up short on his end of the covenant. He can't. So it must be be us, right? But even in times when you really are, like, you're abiding deeply, you're... You're living it. You're growing. You're, I mean, you're, you're walking in holiness. Like, he's making you into that. 
What do you do when that's the case and you still look at him and you're like, man, you are not who I thought you were going to be. Several weeks ago, our staff and interns were meeting and we were just kind of just going through some confessional stuff and um, we were just talking about how this kind of same idea and, and I told him, you know, I, I said, I feel, like, I feel like Jesus says no a lot more than he says yes to the things that we're asking him to do. And I think that's created some, just a sense of disappointment of like, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with that. Here's Israel being perfectly led by Jesus or by God the Father or whatever as their king. And they're like, I don't think you're doing a very good job. And in all honesty, there are plenty of moments, especially in the last year, when I've had those same ideas of just being like, I just don't know that Jesus is doing a very good job as my shepherd or someone else's shepherd. That's a dark place to be. It's a struggle. When he said he'll always be there, and sometimes you wonder. And he said he can do anything, but he chooses not to sometimes. And maybe you ask, and he said no. And he said, but you tell us to ask, you know. So, I want to just land, land on that, basically. Is what do you do when... When God's the one not meeting your expectations. And one of the summer topics that we talked about was abiding, you know, and how it was probably clear how comparison kind of affects our abiding because we end up, you know, comparing our gifts and our progressive uh, growth and maturing in Christ and stuff like that. And, um, and idolatry, kind of the same thing. But I think unmet expectations seems kind of weird because it seems at times, uh, I don't know, Horrible to ever say like, yeah, it's just Jesus didn't meet my expectations right now. And if you grew up in church, that's probably like the last thing you think you should ever say. You know, like lightning might hit me in a second. You know, a little nervous for me. But I think we have to be willing to admit that from our perspective. Sometimes it seems like God comes up short. And the key to that, I believe, is reminding ourselves that it's from our perspective. That's not reality as far as like it being complete. We don't see the things the way that He sees them. And turn to Psalm 22. I know that you, um, all of you may not be, you, some of you probably have no idea what I'm even talking about. And it wouldn't be the first time. So, uh, But I bet that some of you either are or have been or are going to be in a place like this where you're just kind of mad at him. Again, with your spouse, you can work through stuff. There's forgiveness you know, that you work your way through. What do you do when God's the one that you struggle to forgive? It's hard. Uh, but I think it's relevant. 
Because there's probably a good many folks out there, maybe you, maybe someone that you know, that you could pass some of these things on to, know how to pray for them. Folks that are, have really dug their heels in with the Lord because of this idea. Because He has not met their expectations. Um, in Psalm 22, here's David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. So here's David, who's going to be the king that these guys, you know, they want a king, God gives them Saul, who breaks their hearts, and then he brings them David, who is like God's man. His choice. Described as a man after God's own heart. The lineage of Christ. One of the greatest, uh, most faithful men that's ever walked the earth. Wrote so many of the Psalms. And here he is saying, Why have you forsaken me? Why are you far from saving me? Far from the words of my groaning. I cry every day, but you don't answer. I find no rest. So if you feel weird being honest as you pray, then David gets it. And to prove that that God is not upset by that kind of honesty, uh, Jesus quotes this psalm when he's hanging on the cross. So if Jesus disapproved of this kind of honesty in our prayers, he would have like rebuked that and rejected that and corrected what David had to say. But he's lining up with David. Jesus prays the same stuff in Gethsemane, the same stuff when he's being crucified. So Jesus understands the pain. So here's David, and he's just being honest. So what do you do when, when God is, is disappointing you? When you've begged him for something, and he's said no, or he's remained silent, or you wanted him to go this way, and he went that way with it, or whatever it may be, when God is not meeting your expectations... Being really honest with him is perfectly healthy and good and okay. He's not afraid of your honest words. He knows your honest thoughts. He knows, he knows your honest attitude. There's something different when you, when you speak it, when you address it. So I would say the first thing you need to do is you need to be really honest with the Lord. And know that he's not going to be like, ah, you're the worst, get out of here. I think he's like, okay, what else? What else? Now, this psalm is not two verses long. So, in verse 3, it, the tone changes. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you are our fathers trusted. They trusted, you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. You they trusted and were not put to shame. Okay, so he goes from super upset with the Lord to in like worship mode. I don't have any way to prove this. Maybe some of you Hebrew scholars know, but I kind of feel like this couldn't have been written in one sitting. You know, I don't think that he went from like the one extreme to the other that quickly. Maybe he wrote the first the first two verses down and looked at it and was like, man. 
Wow. Maybe he walked away. Maybe he spent hours or days or weeks or months, I don't know, mulling over that and letting the Lord speak into it. Maybe he came down at some later point, sat down, and he says, Yet you are holy. Yet you are holy. He says, You're not meeting my expectations. You're disappointing me. I would do things differently if I was you. This seems to be inconsistent with who you've described yourself to be. I don't understand. I'm upset, and I just don't really want anything to do with you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) And then maybe later, after the Lord tends to him, he comes back and he's like, yet, (laughs) even while I'm feeling that way, these are the things I know. You're holy. I know my fathers, they trusted in you. You delivered them. You've, you've acted. You've moved. I know these things. So the second thing, after honest prayers, I think we get to the point where we're like, okay, what, what do I know to be true and real? It's like that in the, with, the, with the marriage example. There's all these unmet expectations. So what do you do? You go back to the scriptures and you say, okay, what, what is real marriage about? So when God has disappointed you and let you down, I think there's an honesty of there, something cathartic about let's get all this out there. And then I think we go back and we say, what do we know about our God? Even in the midst of all that, he's holy and he's trustworthy and he's a rescuer. That these dark days will come to an end, that there is a point when he will intervene. That Paul asked God three separate times to remove something from his life. And, and on the third time, I was like, no, I'm not going to take it away. Paul's like, all right. So now what? He says, you think you need me to change this, but what you really need is my presence, my grace, and my goodness, and you have it. Paul's like, oh, okay. So he camps out in what's true and what's real. So we do the honest prayer thing. We do the reflection on truth and reality thing. In verse 6, he, he just goes through a bunch, he kind of goes back and forth a little bit. Like verse 6 says, I'm a worm and not a man. Okay, so he kind of goes back into a dark place for a little bit, right? Um, he kind of, I'm not going to read it all, you know, everybody's mocking me, I've had a terrible life, uh, dogs are all around me. Uh, look at verse 19. So he goes back in, he sits down, and he, and so just because David had verses 1 and 2 and then 3, 4, and 5, it doesn't mean that he was necessarily fixed. There's this cyclical deal. Like he had to keep returning to the Lord. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save, save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Right? So he just, gets, he just starts just naming it. It's like, this is what I need. This is what I need. This is what I need. There's a confidence that's building. Saying, I'm not going to trust in my circumstances and my feelings. I'm going to trust in what I know to be true. I'm going to keep asking. That even if my expectations aren't being met, I'm going to act in faith. I'm going to pray in faith. I'm going to live by faith and not by sight and not by emotion. I'm going to bank on what I know to be true. And I'm just going to keep asking. I'm just going to keep at it. And even if, even if he doesn't act the way I want him to, and even if 
it looks different, whatever. I'm, I'm going to be faithful because I know he's not breaking the covenant. He's not changing his mind. He's not changing his character. He's immovable. I'm getting on his page. There's a growth that happens through this. Verse 22 changes again. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All your offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. See, in the text, when, when God like, describes the, the kingship and stuff like that, and he says, and there's going to come a day when you're going to cry out because of this king, and I'm not, I'm not going to hear you, I'm not going to answer you on that day. On that day. He says, I'm going, to, I'm going to let you live with the brokenheartedness of your idolatry for a little bit. I'm not breaking my covenant. I'm not disappearing. I'm not vacuuming my presence away. I'm just going to let you sit in it a little bit. And now, he's turning a corner, and he's like worked his way through it. Verse 25, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. What if, what if this was like a six-month psalm for David? What if this was a part of his journey where he went from, God's not who I thought he was, but I'm really going to try, and then I'm a worm and not a man, and all this kind of stuff, and he gets where I'm just praying and praying and praying. Next thing he knows, he's talking about the next generations and how this is going to spread to the nations. What if this is the story arc of our suffering and our idolatry and our unmet expectations? What if this is what life in Christ looks like? There's a purging and a growing and a strengthening that happens over time. I think it is. And I know I'm not the only one that feels disappointed sometimes that God doesn't do what I think he needs to do. And I don't want to be immature in how I handle that. Because what do you want to do when someone doesn't meet your expectations? You want to just, just peace out. You just want to like, walk away. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. But God's not like that. I want to be mature that when he is not meeting my expectations, what I do is I go back to the drawing board and I'm like, what's going on here? Am I rejecting his lordship? Am I rejecting his sovereignty? Am I rejecting his love for me? Am I, am I rejecting uh, the, the truth about him? Am I rejecting what's real? Am I rejecting, uh, or am I embracing some sort of idol, some sort of sin? Is there something, whatever? I want to be able to process this. And I think Psalm 22 uh, shows us the fact that we are on this journey and God's wanting to break our hearts from the things that we're trying to look to instead of Him. And Israel was stubborn and they never learned. I hate to say never, but kind of never. They went in this up and down, just whatever. It's just a weird history. I don't want to do that. I want to grow and grow and grow and grow. I think maybe for some of us, some of that begins with just confessing. Sometimes God doesn't meet our expectations. Sometimes that's frustrating. 
So we bring it to him and we let us, we just like, well, lead me, you know? You're my shepherd. I shall not want, but I'm kind of wanting. Lead me, green pastures, still waters. The way everlasting, let's go. And he will do it. Uh, let's pray together. Let's, let's stand. I know that uh, I know it's kind of warm in here, and there's not much we can do about that. So we're gonna we're gonna sing a little bit uh, a little bit more than we usually do as a way of responding. Because um, I think that probably a lot of us we need some we just need some time to uh, to sing in spite of how we're feeling or thinking. And to maybe be confessional through song about stuff. So we're going to sing songs about faithfulness and presence and goodness. And even if you aren't feeling it, or if you're kind of in the beginning of that Psalm 22 place where you're like, man, he, he ain't had anything to do with me in forever. He doesn't listen to me. He doesn't like me. He doesn't whatever. If that's where you are, uh, I would encourage you to sing anyway. Um, I think that's how we move forward in that progression of the psalm. As we begin with honesty and then we push into what we know to be true. So let me pray for us and we're just going to sing a little bit and pray together at the end. So let me pray. God, thank you for... Uh, thankful for the way that you do sometimes hand us those idols. That you aren't scared of what may happen. Because you're in charge of the process. Uh, you see the goodness that will come. I'm thankful for that. Thankful for the way you teach us and grow us. Thankful, Jesus, that you quoted the Psalm 22 on the cross, which helps us know it's all right to be honest and vulnerable. It's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to admit that we don't understand stuff. And it's all part of helping us realize that from our perspective, things are just kind of weird and it helps us to trust that from your perspective, uh, things look different. That you see things we don't, you sense things, um, you know things that we don't, can't see coming. And you're guiding and you're shepherding and we're grateful. So help us as we respond um, just to sing whether we feel like it or not.